Take your Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. We're going to spend most of our time in Amos chapter 5, but we're going to start in chapter 1. We're in the midst of a series called the Minor Prophets, and so um, we are looking at a specific minor prophet every week. And so every week that we are in this summer, we're taking one minor prophet and we are using that to look at um, what lessons they might have for us. Now, just a reminder, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together um, that I've been here because we were in Denver last week, that minor prophets does not mean unimportant or less important. It just means that they're shorter. They're shorter books. The prophets have shorter prophecies. And so as a result, they're grouped together originally in the Hebrew text as the book of the twelve, and it's the twelve minor prophets all put together. And so we're just taking this summer to take one uh, one book a week and talk about it. So if you're this is the only week you're going to be here this summer, or you haven't been here yet for one of these, you aren't missing anything that we've talked about. You can go back and listen to those online. But we are jumping into a brand new book today and looking at it, and we're looking at the book of Amos. Now, we learn a lot about Amos in the very first verse of the first chapter of his book. And this isn't going to be on the screen. And so if you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you do encourage you to open it and find Amos. Use the table of contents if you need to or, or flip through the kind of the back part of the Old Testament or find it on your phone. It's even easier there to look at. But in Amos chapter 1, we have these words. It says, The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joahash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Here's what I want to talk about for just a moment. I want to talk about this man, Amos. And then we're going to get into his message. This man, Amos, is unique among the prophets because he has not been in a prophet school. He's not a guy that has gone to learn how to be a prophet. He didn't go to seminary to learn how to write. He didn't get a description on how to study the Bible. It tells us in this passage what his job was. What was his job? He was a shepherd, a sheep breeder, somebody that bred sheep. And what we need to understand from that is that was a very common level job. And I don't, not, not that being a sheep breeder has ever been like high income job, but that is the common man's job. All right. Back in that day, being a sheep breeder was just being a farmer, being somebody to supply things for your community. Now, not only does it tell us he's a sheep breeder, it says he's a sheep breeder from Tekoa. And by my idea is that most of us in this place won't recognize regularly that name Tekoa. It's a kind of an out of the woods, back of the woods kind of place. In fact, we've got a map of Israel that will show you, and I'm going to explain a little bit more about this in a minute, But because um, I know everybody loves maps and history, so we're going to do a lot of that today. All right. Um, but Tekoa would have been somewhere down here around Hebron, but a ways from Jerusalem, all right? And here's what's important about this passage of Scripture that we need to understand. He mentions two kings. He mentions Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king that lived a long life and reigned for a long time. At the end of Uzziah's life is when um, Isaiah is called to ministry in Isaiah chapter 6. And then in the northern kingdom, he mentions a guy named Jeroboam. Now, sometimes when we start reading Old Testament names and we start reading through the Bible, we can get confused because people have the same name. I mean, how dare they have the same name? Nobody ever has the same names, right? Right? No, we don't have multiple Jeffs in the church or multiple, you know, we don't have that kind of stuff, right? And so um, we, 
what happens here is we're talking about a guy who is king of Israel, who was named after the first king of Israel, but does not have the, any kind of family linkage to him. So he is Jeroboam the second, but Jeroboam the second is not related to Jeroboam the first. And just to give you a little history, and again, I know when I say history, some of you light up. I love history. And some of you, like, eyes glaze over. Just stick with me for a second. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but there came a time in the history of Israel when, because of bad leadership through Solomon's son Rehoboam, that it split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And what we know from the history of that is that the first king of Israel, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, the divided northern kingdom, was a guy named Jeroboam I. And he was a guy that took over a country that economy was booming. There were some reasons for that. First of all, it had more land, but not only did it have more land, it had better land. It had land that could actually be used for agriculture. It had land that people wanted to grow things on. It had a much larger population, a much larger number of people there. It had a much more advanced military. In fact, they were known for their archers, people that could shoot arrows at long distances into the enemy. They had a corner when it became these two kingdoms on the routes of the sea. You can see that the Mediterranean Sea is here. Kingdom of Judah has no access to it except through Israel. There were major trade routes that came right down the Mediterranean Sea that did not go to Judah, but went all the way through Israel. And so they were booming economically. They had the best military in the area. They had the best economy, the best land, the best trade routes, the best access to the Mediterranean Sea. But there was one thing that the northern kingdom of Israel did not have that the southern kingdom did. And that was Jerusalem. Why is Jerusalem important to the people of Israel? What's in Jerusalem? The temple. And so the leader, Jeroboam, got to thinking, I can't have all my people thinking they have to go to the southern kingdom to worship. And so he began to put up all these different places to worship. And Shechem, and well, this says Bethel there, but that is a different or variation of Bethel. Bethel. And he begins to put in those places areas where they can worship. And in Bethel, he builds a shrine to worship and he rolls a golden calf into it and tells the people of Israel, you no longer have to go to Jerusalem to worship. You can worship this cow. Now, let me just ask you a quick question, mainly to see if you're still listening. All right. Do you think God liked or disliked having a golden cow worshiped? Disliked, right? That is not, there is nowhere in the Bible, please worship a golden cow. Right? They also had poles that they worshipped all over the land. And so you had this kingdom of Israel that appeared to be blessed by God because they had a booming economy, great military, strong security, great trade access, great trade routes. It looked like everything was happening that should be happening. And yet spiritually they were bankrupt. And so God calls a sheep breeder from the south to come to Bethel on one of their holidays and to preach. Amos 1. I'll just read a little bit of this, then we'll go to chapter 5 to read what he says. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, 
what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. And then he begins his sermon by denouncing all of the enemies of the northern kingdom. We won't read all of these, but you can, if you've got your Bibles open to chapter 1, you can see them. Verse 3, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus. Verse 6, I will not relent from punishing Gaza. Verse 9, I will not relent from punishing Tyre. Verse 11, I will not relent from punishing Edom. Verse 13, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites. Verse chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab. So put that, put that map back up real quickly, Josh. I want you to see this, all right? So he says, I want, I'm going to punish Damascus. I'm going to punish Gaza, which is a strip over here. I'm going to punish Tyre right there. I'm going to punish Edom, which is right there. I'm going to punish the Ammonites. Right there. And I'm going to punish the Moabites right there. What do you think the people of Israel are thinking while he's giving this part of the sermon? Amen. Come on, bring it, preacher. Let's go. Right? He says God's going to punish the people of Damascus and Tyre and Gaza and Ammon and Moab and Edom. And then he even says, and not only that, God's not going to relent in punishing Judah. Your brothers that have broken off from you and don't think you're good enough and don't think you worship the right way and don't think you are deserving of the calling of God's people anymore. And they are amen and keep on, brother, preach it. Keep on. There obviously wasn't this church because that doesn't happen here, but in some churches that kind of stuff happens. Okay? There we go. We got one. And they're loving it. But then in chapter 2, He starts to turn. Chapter 2, verse 4, if you've got your Bibles open. It says, I will not relent from punishing Judah. And there's still amen. And then he gets to chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel. For three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. My guess is the amens stopped. He'll go on to say in this, by the way, in chapter 2, verse 15, that if you don't turn around from what I'm about to describe to you, that the archer will not stand his ground, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty men shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. What he's saying is that even your most prized fighters, Israel's archers, would be put to shame. Their national pride, your crack warriors, your fearless, devastating marksmen are going to be completely destroyed. They're going to walk away with nothing that day. It would be the equivalent of today, somebody saying, the United States Army is going to be so completely destroyed. Your military base, your navy will be completely destroyed. In fact, your navy seals are going to collapse into the fetal position crying for their mommies because they're so scared. 
Your most feared warriors are going to be defeated. In chapter 3, verse 15, he tells them, and you think you've got it good? Amos says, listen, your winter house, your summer house, and your regular house. Now, can you, be, can you say real quickly, if you've got a winter, summer, and regular house, you're doing okay? Right? Your winter, your summer, your, your regular house, they're going to be destroyed. You think you've got it figured out, but they're going to be destroyed. And then he begins to list the things that they have problems with. He says in verse 6 of chapter 2, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They exploit the poor. Silver in that day was a symbol for a loan or a huge debt. And the, the world economy in Amos' day was changing. Up until that time, Israel had kind of gotten a collection of localized farmers that would share things and help each other and barter with their goods. But to keep up with this new world economy that was coming, they had to focus on mass-producing crops and selling them and trading them and sending them there, which is fine. But what happened is there were some people who began to specialize and then also through monopolies and inflation began to put other farmers out of business or into debt. Things were so bad that poor people were going into debt even to buy a pair of shoes, which is what he's referring to here. And in those days, there was no chance at filing bankruptcy and getting your house in order and coming back. If you couldn't pay your debts, you were either in prison or put into servitude. He goes on to say in this passage that they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. That means they use their riches to twist the justice system. Later in chapter 5, he'll describe how the rich manipulate the court system to benefit themselves in the way that the poor could never do. Verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, and they turn aside the way of the afflicted. They didn't even care. They lived lives of ease and comfort and luxury in the face of suffering. It's important to know that God sees this not just as some kind of flaw. He sees it as a breach of justice. According to Amos, God sees a failure to help the poor as injustice. Throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, the word justice occurs over 200 times. And it is usually used to describe one of what one is called the four or the quartet of the vulnerable. That justice ought to be done for widows and orphans and foreigners and the poor. And that when we fail to do that, we're not following God's plan. The problem Amos saw with their way of life, with what was happening to them, is that they saw their riches as their own, used for their benefit. So they were oblivious to those around them that didn't have anything. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 1, Amos looks at the people of Israel and he looks specifically at the wives in Israel and he declares to them, Hear this word, you fat cows of Bashan who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. He refers to the wives of Israel as the fat cows. That takes boldness in preaching to a whole nother level. Can I get an amen? Well, you maybe not want to amen that one, all right? Now, you can read some commentaries that say, that doesn't mean as severe of a thing as it would today. I just know that I've never known of any institution in the history of the world, any time period in the history of the world, where calling a lady a fat cow did not get some sort of response. I'm not calling anybody that. I'm saying that that's what it says here. His point is this. 
They had plenty. And they were spending their husband's money pursuing luxury when people were suffering all around them. They weren't working, which there's nothing wrong with that, but they're staying at home and they only cared about fashion and vacations and staying in great shape and eating organic and driving nice cars. And For instance, while people around them were dying in their summer home or their winter home. It's not just that. He says you've allowed the culture of the people that have infiltrated to influence you. In chapter 2, verse 7, said they trample the heads of the poor, the dust of the ground, obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, and it profanes my holy name. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians where a man and stepmother are living openly. And Paul says it should not be. You've allowed the culture to describe who you've become and what you were doing. And God says the worst part about all this is that while the Amorites came to attack you, even though you're living completely devoid of me, the Amorites came to attack you. I protected you. I sent them away. They were going to be better than you. They were going to defeat you. But I kept them away. I saved you by grace and you have turned your back on me. He said, I sent you some prophets to tell you the things that you need to change. And you laughed at them. You mocked them. You did not follow them. You decided to do your own thing. You told them to stop telling prophecy. Amos says, now imagine Amos, a southerner, standing in a northern place of worship on a holy holiday, saying, listen, this is what the Lord says. You can imagine, they did not like it. In fact, there's going to be a guy later that says, king, this guy's trouble, he's, he's, a, ra- he's a radical, you don't need to listen to him, the people listen to him, you need to shut him up. You need to quiet him down. You need to tell him to stop. But Amos keeps saying what God has called him to do. And he says, listen, and you think you're okay because you are giving all that you've got to coming to worship and to being at worship. But God says to you, your heart is far from me. You are mistreating people. You are not taking care of the poor. You are not helping people that need to be helped. And because of that, God literally says in Amos chapter 5, I hate your solemn assemblies. I cannot listen to your music. I can despise your offerings. Because you think you can cover up your lifestyle by coming into worship on Sunday and take care of it there. And he would say to the people of Israel, if you think that you can cover up in one day what you're doing the other sick, then you are sadly mistaken. All the amens had stopped. See, we like it when we can talk about other people's sins. We don't like it when the spotlight turns on us. It reminds me of a story I heard one time about a woman in church that was excited to hear the pastor, or maybe like some of you right now, was finally going to preach a prophetic sermon on sin. So pastor started talking about drunkenness and pornography, and she started shouting, Amen! Keep on! He started talking about corruption in Washington, and she said, Preach it! She turned to her neighbor and said, He is on fire this morning. And then he tackled the subject of gossip. And she leaned over to her friend and said, now he needs to mind his own business right now. <laughs> the bridge between Amos's day and ours is not a hard one to make. I mean, I could stand up here today and we could talk about the moral corruption in Hollywood, 
the violence and degradation of women in rap music and how vulgar TV shows have become, the, the moral vacuum that postmodernism is, a secularist agenda that is being crammed down our throats by the media and the education establishment, the activist judges who are misusing their positions in our country to curtail religious freedom, the fatherlessness problem that we have in communities, the corruption and hypocrisy of groups like Planned Parenthood, the evils of Islamic terrorism or the wickedness of religious persecution in places like Russia and China or North Korea. And I can talk about how bad those things are, and they are bad. Then my guess is if I harped on those, talked about those, really got into those, I would get some amens, I would get some preachers, I would get some you-go brothers. Just like northern Israel did when Amos was talking about all those other countries. But what happens when the spotlight turns on us? Specifically in some of the same areas that he called out northern Israel for. For instance, God demands economic justice, not exploitation by his people. He'll reiterate that in chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, and chapter 5, verse 15. The problem with the boom economy is often that the rich get richer and the rich get richer faster. The United States is one of those countries that is doing as well economically as any country has done in the history of the world. But it is amazing how much that affects a certain percentage of the population. For instance, I don't know if you know this or not, and these are numbers that have been verified in other places, that the top 10% of wealthy families in America own 76% of the wealth. And the next 40% of wealthiest families in America own 23% of the wealth. Let me just think about this for a minute. Does anybody do quick math? I know we got some math teachers in here. 76 plus 23 is 99%. So the top 50% of wealthy households in America own 99% of the wealth. You want to hear another staggering statistic? One that I checked three times. If you take the median household wealth, like what they have on hand or what they could get access to, of three ethnic groups in America, African American median wealth in America is $1,200 per family. Latino, Hispanic, $2,000 per family. Caucasian, $116,000 per family. Hey, listen, and I know some of you go, yeah, but there there are reasons, and there are reasons, and there are some reasons why that happens and where that goes. You say, well, what can I do about that? What should I do about that? What do I need to do about that? Here's the first thing you need to do about it. Can we care about it? Can we just care about it to start with? Can we say that's something we need to ask questions about? That's something we need to investigate. I'm not, and I'm not a redistribution of wealth guy. I'm not that at all. Other countries have tried that. It has failed. I'm not think, I don't think the Bible teaches clearly that that is the way to do it. But I do think we have to ask the question, how do we help some more people get in the game and out of poverty? And the people that ought to be on the front lines of asking that question are believers in Jesus Christ. That's not me saying it. That's Amos. So if you're mad at me, be mad at Amos. If you're like, I don't like that, neither do the people in northern Israel. But that didn't make it less true. Let's care. 
and where possible, let's help. The second area that he was mad at them about, God was upset with them about, is that they weren't authentic. They were hypocritical. They came in on Sunday mornings, one Sunday for them, but it is for us. They sang the songs. Your good, good father. Oh, how he loves me. They sang them, they even sang them loudly. They even sang them right. They even sang them in the right ritual, on the right days, in the right parts. God still looks at them and says, like he would say through Isaiah just a little bit later, your hearts are far from me, even though your lips are praising me. Inauthentic Christianity leads to impotent Christianity. With a lack of power to do the things God has called us to do. They're like, we're not letting pastor go on mission trips anymore. He comes back too harsh. It's not me. It's Amos. God wanted them to be authentic in their lifestyle. He wants them and he wants us to love him and other people more than we love our material wealth. He talks to them throughout. That's the whole cows of Bashan thing. He's saying, listen, you care more about what you have. You care more about what you've got than the people that are around you. And here's the thing that is true about human nature. We have an endless capacity for increasing our new normal of what we have to have. Like if you think about the things that right now, it would be interesting for us if we could have, and we can't, we can't go back in time, not yet at least, right? We can't go back in time. If we could go back in time 15 years ago and ask, what can you not live without? And we made our list. And then now we ask, what could you not live without? Wouldn't it be fascinating to see the number of things that would have been added to that list? Right? In 15 years. I think of the bills that we have as a family that my parents never had to think about. Internet access, cell phone bills. Can't live without that stuff. Some of you have been to my house. Others of you haven't. I don't have a luxurious house. It's right here in Goodlettsville. It's a used house because there are six of us living in it. We bought it. We had four. Um, We bought it for four or five. We have six. But if you would have showed me that house when I was 15 years old and told me but when I was in my 40s, that's the house I would have had, it's a better house than my parents ever had. And I would have been shocked. You know what I do now when I walk around the house? Man, I wish I had a little bit bigger this or a little bit better that. Do we need to expand this? Do we need to expand that? Do we need to redo that or redo this? And I'm saying it's bad to think about that, but it's amazing how we can elevate our level and capacity for what our new normal is. We get home, and most of us used to be satisfied with a decent meal cooked but now we watch the food network and everybody's has to look good on the plate and have all this stuff we we scroll through facebook and tasty is making fried oreo donuts and everybody's like we got to have some of that i've never seen that before but just thinking about it it would be awesome right and we turn on hgtv and chip and jojo told us how to get shiplap everywhere and we're like why well, have i never been able to live with it i can't live without shiplap anymore i gotta have it We have an endless capacity for increasing our new level of normal. And listen to these statistics. This is for us. The average Christian today 
gives less than 2.4% of their income to God's work. Many never give anything. Jesus, you may remember Jesus, right? He came after Amos. He's considered a prophet as well, along with the Savior of the world. Said to the religious of his day, You tithe mint and spice and cumin, but you have forgotten the weightier parts of the law, which is to love others like you love yourself and to use your money to show mercy. Most Christians in America aren't even at the tithe portion. In fact, some numbers say between 85 and 90% of Christians do not tithe. They may give to the church, but they don't give 10% at least. And the irony is, the more wealthy you become, the less you give percentage-wise. We live in some of the most blessed times imaginable. Most of us in this room, we're in that top 50% that owns the 99% of the wealth. We've talked about this before. Worldwide, we're like in the top 1%, 2% worldwide. God didn't give us that to insulate us from the pain of others who are struggling. He didn't give us that just to enjoy on our own without thinking of the repercussions that it has on others. We have to think about how we can help and serve God's kingdom with what he's given us. And then lastly, he just simply wants the people of God to repent when they're wrong and not defend themselves. They came up with excuses but, 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 like we're God's people. God says to him in chapter 3, verse 2, that makes your sin even worse. They say, what about our religious zeal? And God says, I hate it. I despise your feet because your heart isn't there. And so the question becomes, what do we do? Amos chapter 5. And we're done. Amos chapter 5. God says, Listen to this message through Amos. By the way, the the first six chapters of this book are just one long sermon. Chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this message that I'm singing for you, a lament house of Israel. He says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. She has fallen. Israel, the northern kingdom, has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. He says, listen, it's coming. You're going to be destroyed. In fact, he says, the city that marches out a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And with one that marches out a hundred strong will have ten left in the house of Israel. That's ten percent. He says, you're going to lose ninety percent of your fighting warriors. Ninety percent of your men are going to be destroyed in battle. Ninety percent of your people. In fact, this prophecy became true. He, uh, Amos has given this prophecy somewhere around 800 to 780 B.C. They were destroyed in 722 B.C. Many of their best killed. Others taken off to serve the Assyrian empire but he does give them a chance they didn't take it but we can verse 4 for the lord says to the house of israel seek me and live seek me and live do you want to know what it takes to please god do you want to know what it takes to be right with god do you want to know what it takes to be in the correct place with god it is those two Words, seek me. Seek me and live. Look for me. Hunt me. Search for me. Read his word. Study his word. Seek God in prayer. Go after him with all you've got. Seek him and live. This past week in Denver, one of the things that we did as a team, the 16 of us, all 16 of us, read through the entire book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 1 through 28, we read three to four chapters a day. We'd get together at night. We'd talk about what we'd read, the crazy stories we've read. I don't know if you've read Acts lately. There's some crazy stories in there. A guy gets struck by an angel and dies, gets eaten by worms. Um, a guy's listening to Paul preach one night, and Paul goes on so long that guy falls asleep in a window, falls out of the window and dies. Then Paul goes down and, you know, revives him. If any of you die in my sermon, I don't know that I can do that, but Paul... Did, revived him right there. Ananias and Sapphira come in, look at the offering we have for the Lord. They die on the spot. Sapphira comes in, tries to lie about it. And he says, listen, the people that dragged your husband's dead body out of here are standing at the door about to take yours. You're gone. Stories of Paul and Silas singing in prison and the prison doors open and they don't leave because they're worried about the jailers around them and the salvation that's going to happen there. Stories of Paul standing before the governors of Rome and the governors of his area of the country and declaring his testimony there. And stories that tell things like and 3,000 were added that day and there were up to 5,000 and a church that started in a day had 3,000 people at once. Miraculous stories. On set yesterday morning, Saturday morning, we sat down as a team in the house where we were staying, and we all looked at each other. And I just said, "I want you to tell me the one thing that you take away from this." And there were lots of great responses. And in the midst of it, we talked about one of the true lessons in that whole book is there was an urgency and a boldness for the gospel. And that at every moment they had, they proclaimed the gospel to the people around them with urgency and boldness. But behind that, behind the scenes of that is, that only happened because the people were consistently seeking God in prayer for the power that was required to take the gospel to the nations. And I wonder how many of us would say that we have honestly sought the Lord. Not casual reading of Scripture every now and then. Not casual coming to church while I gave my duty for the week. I'm good. I'm talking about seeking the Lord. Searching the Lord. Thinking about concentrating on the ways of God. And being willing when those areas of our lives are exposed to let the God who loves us change us. Let us seek Him. Let's pray together.